Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be. Ephesians 4 verse 1. Let's all stand as read God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, there will be a Bible on the screen. And thank you for those of you watching online. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to, one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You may be seated. I don't know how many of you are excited about football season. Any of you excited about football season coming around? The NFL is starting. College football is coming, coming to the... So what I wanted to do is do a little test. I wanted to see uh, the people that are here. There's hundreds and hundreds of people here. What your favorite team is. And so if this is your favorite team, let it be known. If your favorite college football team is the Florida Gators... All right. All those rowdy reptiles are here. If you are a Florida State Seminole. All right. University of Miami Hurricane. The U. Georgia Bulldog fans. <laughs> Once every 40 years, right? Once every 40 years. University of Kentucky Wildcats. Anybody in the house? That's right. Amen. We are the elect. And you say, you didn't call my favorite team. It's because now you don't matter. <laughs> Alabama fans, we're praying for all of you all. Some of you say, I don't like football at all. What are you doing here? I don't even, I don't watch it. Uh, some say, I only watch the NFL. Some say, I don't believe in the NFL. It's fake news. But listen, as difficult as it is for a room with this many people to agree on their favorite team, I got another one to ask. How many of you struggle getting your family to agree on where to go to eat? Anybody else in the room have this issue? So I, if you have a family of five, it's hard, okay? I have one that wants to just do it all to go. They just want drive through. And then I have another one. Let, let's have a really nice sit-down meal. Another one, let's eat really healthy. Let's eat like vegan tonight. No offense to people that are that's vegan, but yeah. And then one, I just want chicken nuggets and french fries. Amen? 
And so, like, it's hard to get a family of five to agree on where to go, but as hard as it is to get people to agree on a football team, and as hard as it is to get a family to agree on where to go eat, it is even harder for a church where there are people from different backgrounds, different preferences, different generations, different cultures, and different opinions to all come together. See, if you are in a church of thousands, you have thousands of opinions. And it is impossible to make everybody happy and to suit everyone's preferences. But despite our differences, the church is the one place where we can have unity because our unity is found in Jesus Christ. Now, we are about to enter into a new phase in our church. It's a new chapter in the adventure called First Baptist Church of Naples. And I wanted to, as we are about to enter into a new service time and and a new season in our church, to call our church to unity. See, my hope and prayer is that we would be a church of, of people from different backgrounds, preferences, ethnicities, generations, and giftedness, that we would all unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ and the vision of being a multi generational, multi ethnic, multiplying church that reaches Naples to the nations. See, our mission is not to grow. Our mission is to multiply. And so that is the prayer of my heart. And that's the the, the tenor of scripture is that that is what the goal of the church is, not to just grow and then die, but to multiply and flourish. And, And so Paul here is writing to a church, a church set in the city of Ephesus. He has spent two years of his life establishing this church in Ephesus. Ephesus was kind of like Naples. It's very metropolitan, very affluent. It was filled with people with great socioeconomic and ethnic diversity. And Paul here is writing to this church nestled on the Aegean Sea, and he's praying at least two prayers he prays in chapters one through three. One is he prays that they, that their faith would be strengthened so that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. And then he prays in chapter three that, that they would be filled with the fullness of God. And his prayer is that they would have their minds saturated, their hearts full of Jesus. Because when your mind is saturated and your heart is filled with Jesus, it will enable you to have unity. It will give you the ability to have unity in the gospel that will help you reach your community, your city, and the nations for Jesus Christ. And here's what you have to understand. A unified church will shake the gates of hell. And there is nothing that Satan fears more than a church that is united in Jesus Christ. See, Satan will do everything he can to divide the church. So what Satan will do is he will get us to disagree on things that don't matter so that we will not do the things that do matter. And so a church that is unified can change the world. In a divided world, there needs to be a united church. And so let's unpack what Paul says to this church in Ephesus, this growing church in a metropolitan but very diverse community. And here's what we're going to learn is that in chapter four, Paul teaches us both the cause and the cost of our unity, the cause of our unity and the cost for our unity. So let's dive in. Verse one, I, therefore, every word of scripture is inerrant and is inspired. So Paul here in his 
transitional phrase here, I therefore, he is shifting gears. This is a bridge between everything he said in chapters one through three to everything he's going to say in chapters four through six. In chapters one through three, he is telling us the theological grounding for how we can live a very practical everyday Christian life. And so chapters one through three are orthodoxy. They are teaching us the truth, the theological gospel truths. And then chapters four through six are orthopraxy. These are the practical everyday living. So a lot of us, we, when you read a book, you, you typically, I, sometimes for me, when I read a Christian book, is I kind of want to skip over the theology and just get to how do I hack it on Monday. But yet Paul here is wanting us to make sure that we have both. And so this transitional phrase, I therefore, is rooted in the gospel so that we can find the gospel implications. And so that's why the book of Ephesians has 41 commands, and yet 40 of the 41 are found in chapters 4 through 6. And the reason why is he gives us the reason for why we do what we do. It's the why behind the what. Why we live this way is what he does in chapters 1 through 3, and then he tells us how to live this way. And if you, here's what happens. If you don't connect the why behind the what in Christianity, you'll produce hypocrites. You won't produce Christians. And so a great way that I can explain this is through parenting. If all you do is just tell your kids, don't do this, don't do that, don't wear that, don't think this, don't watch that, don't listen to that, and you don't tell them why, you may modify your child's behavior, but you won't change or guide their heart. And so what Paul is doing in verses, chapters one through three is really getting to their heart. So then that motivation will then inspire them to here's how you live the Christian life. And so he says, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner. Paul here is, is describing ordinary Christian life through this metaphor of walking. It's one of his favorite expressions. He uses this expression walk eight times in the book of Ephesians and 33 times in all of his letters. And he's calling believers in light of the gospel, in light of what Jesus has done for them, and in light of their calling to live lives a certain way. He is quoting the, theolo the theologian DMC Run when he says, walk this way and talk this way. Walk this way, talk this way. You heathens know what I'm talking about. So what he's saying is this is not a suggestion. This is a command. I therefore am urging you to live this way, to walk this way and talk this way. What is that? A manner worthy of the calling. What's the calling? It's the gracious calling of God in your life that saved you. It is priceless. This calling is an infinite worth. It is what he talks about in verse 4 is our hope, the hope of our calling. It's the calling he describes in chapter 2 when he says that we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, walking with Satan, living in darkness, and yet we were called out of death into eternal life. We were called out of darkness into marvelous light. We were walking with the devil and working with the devil. Now we're walking with God and doing the good works that God has ordained for us. It's the calling. He says they'll walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, some of you are saying, we're not worthy. <laughs> we're not worthy. None of us are worthy of the calling. None of us in this room that are Christians are worthy of being a Christian. But yet, even though we're not worthy of it, doesn't mean that we shouldn't aspire to live a life that is worthy of it. That we would sync up our lives to meet the call of God in our lives. That we would live the brand. That we would live for the name on the front of the jersey, not the name on the back of the jersey. That it would, in, in a proper response to our calling, we are called Christians. And so therefore, we should live like it and we should act like it. 
One of the worst ways that we can really disparage the name of Jesus is to call ourselves a Christian and live like Satan. And so he says, I'm urging you to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling, that you are representing King Jesus. You are representing your father who is in heaven. So then he tells us how to do that. He lists virtues. He says, do it with all humility, lowliness, not thinking less of yourself as C.S. Lewis tells us, but thinking of ourselves less. Humility is fitting for those who have been called by God. It is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So humility. The second is he says, do it with gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness, but it's strength under control. Do it very gently. Live your life gently. Patience, suffering long without blowing up. Forbearance is suffering wrong without breaking up. He says, live this way with humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, bearing one another in love. Sometimes it's hard to love people, isn't it? For this goal, to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The, 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 the way that you live a, a life that's worthy of the calling is that you are eager to maintain the unity. Paul here wants this church to be unified. In this church, there were people from every background, every shape, every size, every thought, Jews, Gentiles, so much tension. And what God wanted through Paul here is he wanted unity in the midst of their diversity. The church of Ephesus was a growing church. It was a church that's on mission. And whenever you're a church on mission, there's always going to be issues of unity. When you start reaching people that don't look like you and talk like you and dress like you and think like you and vote like you and don't have the same amount of money as you and don't have the same career path as you, it gets very messy. So Paul says, listen, the, a mark that you're living a life that's worthy of the calling is that you are eager to pursue unity. But yet the greatest question that you're probably asking right now is, all right, Pastor Allen, what is unity? Because our world talks about unity. You hear uh, commercials and you'll see things, slogans on social media that we need to be united, that we need to have unity. But yet the world talks about unity, but yet it's not unified. And the unity that it proposes is not real unity. So how do we define unity? Well, we're going to define unity by what it's not. Unity in the church is not uniformity. It's not where everybody in the church agrees on everything. If you want to be in a church where everybody in the church agrees on everything, there are only going to be one member in that church, and that's you. Oneness is not sameness. And so unity doesn't mean that we have to think and agree on everything the exact same way. And the reason why is because a biblical vision of a New Testament church is a place where Jesus is so large that it makes any disagreements that we have on secondary issues seem less important. You know, it is amazing over the past few years how many believers have been willing to walk away from their church over relatively small disagreements. Things that are so microscopic like the color of the carpet or the temperature of the coffee in the foyer or because somebody gave them a nasty look. Listen, if I stopped coming because people gave me a nasty look, I would never go to church a day in my life. <laughs> we allow things that are so microscopic compared to eternity allow us to abandon our church. And so what they do is I'm going to abandon my church and go find another church that fits me. And I only come to find out that there is no such thing as a church that fits you. But it's amazing to see people 
who say they hate cancel culture cancel their church over disagreements that they have over temporary things. See, there are important issues. Michael Byrd, a theologian, talks about theological triage. He talks about three levels of importance when it comes to issues in the church. Number one, issues that are first order are matters that are essential for salvation. These are non-negotiable. The, 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 the truths of the gospel, the person of Jesus, and the way of salvation, those are non-negotiable. Those are first order issues. The second order issues are matters that are important to the faith in the church, but they're not necessarily essential for salvation, like uh, sexual ethics and and gender. But yet, what I want you to understand is that both one first order things and second order things are clear in Scripture. But then the, he talks about third order things, and these are matters of indifference. These are non-essential, debatable things, preferences and opinions like politics or spiritual gifts. But yet, everyone has an opinion. Do you know the Greek word for opinion? Twitter. <laughs> Where everybody is a legend in their own mind. And they all live in an echo chamber. And yet what happens is that people on Twitter or people on social media think that whatever they think is important is what is important. But not everything you think is important is heaven or hell important. Not every issue is a first order issue. One of my pastor friends said, he says, the problem is that the longer you're in the church, the more you start to like your opinions on everything and think everyone else needs to live by your opinions. And so the thought is, you can either agree with me or be wrong. But that's not true. That's not unity. Unity is not uniformity. It's not that we're just walking, everybody walks the same way. We're not robots. But secondly, unity is not relativism. Unity is not where you just say that everyone is right and everyone has their truth and you have your truth and I have my truth and everyone to each his own. See, our unity doesn't come at, ex at the expense of the truth. Our unity comes at the very existence of the truth. And so it is unity in the truth, not unity in spite of the truth. A few weeks ago, I was meeting with someone who wasn't a believer, and they uh, were talking about sexuality, human sexuality. And, and we were talking about different things, and, and we came to this topic where they were saying, well, I don't think it's necessarily right for you to think this way, and, or I have an issue with this. And so then I asked them this question. Uh, I said, do you believe in absolute truth? Now, it's really funny when I ask people that question, because sometimes I've actually heard people say, no, not at all. I absolutely don't believe in absolute truth. <laughs> and so what this person said is they said, well, I believe that truth is on a spectrum. That you have your truth and I have my truth. And I said, so what you're telling me is the truth's on a spectrum. So is two plus two on a spectrum? Is the answer to two plus two on a spectrum? Do you want a doctor or a pilot to do their jobs on the basis of a truth spectrum? And this person, you don't understand what I'm saying. We just need to love people and let people live their truths. And I said, well, then what happens, though, when my truth contradicts your truth? I said, you just don't get it. I said, well, that's my truth. <laughs> <laughs> there are certain truths that we cannot compromise on and still have unity. If you don't have the truth, then what's the basis of your unity? I mean, Paul says that the, for the church, there are at least seven things that are fixed realities. There is one body, his church, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, one hope from our calling, one Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, the gospel, one baptism identifying with Christ, and one God and Father over all. These are fixed realities. 
And our unity rests in the oneness that we have on these fixed realities. So on the essentials, there needs to be unity. On the non-essentials, there needs to be liberty. And on those, on everything else, there needs to be love, as Augustine says. But yet we must be unapologetic when it comes to the truth. And we as a church should never back down from speaking the truth, even if people get upset and even if people leave the church over it. Because it doesn't matter how much money they contribute. It doesn't matter who they are in the, in the city. It doesn't matter what they do. The truth is the truth. And we don't compromise the truth. Because you can't have unity without the truth. But yet, when you speak the truth, you should speak it in love. Because... You're a sinner and you need just as much grace as the other person that you're talking to. See, the most loving thing you can do is graciously speak the truth to someone even if it hurts. The truth in love will often hurt before it heals. But unity is not uniformity. Unity is not relativism. Number three, unity is not repression. This is not communist China. And what I mean by that is this is not, unity is not a place where we suppress and repress our thoughts and feelings and never talk about our disagreements and just smile at everyone and say, well, bless your heart. That's being fake. That's being hypocritical. Real unity is when you actually talk about your differences and you learn from each other. Listen, we will never have unity in our church if we don't talk about things that are controversial. We will never have unity in our church if we will not actually take time to listen to someone who has a view that's different than ours. And then what we do is we judge their view and we judge our view by thus says the word of God. But unity is not repression. So unity is not uniformity. It is not relativism. It's not repression. But here's what he does say in his definition uh, the, the, of Paul is that unity is the unity of the spirit. That is, it's the unity that the Holy Spirit creates. It's the unity that he creates through our calling. And so when we lose unity with each other, it's because A, we forgot who we are and B, we're not walking in the Holy Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so our job, as he says, that we are to be eager to maintain the unity. That is, we don't create the unity. We just are to maintain the unity. It's a unity that we already have in the Holy Spirit by walking in the Spirit. It, that's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so if you want to know whether or not you are walking in the Holy Spirit, here's a great test. Do you love controversy? Do you love division? Do you run your mouth? Do you gossip? Do you tear others down or not? If you do, you're not walking in the spirit because a mark of a spirit-filled believer is that they are eager to want unity, not disunity. Now, let me just tell you something right now. It is fun to watch arguments. It is fun to watch division. It is easy to get caught up into the visceral debates that people have around us. But our heart goal should be unity, unity. So it is our job to maintain it. The Holy Spirit creates it, but it's our job to maintain it. He says, be eager to maintain it. Now, I want you to think of unity in this way. Think of it as the unity of your hand. Most of you in this room didn't have to put your hand on to come to church. Most of you didn't have to put your hand together. When you were born, most people in this room, most people watching online, you're, you're born with your hand, and it was intact. It, it, it grew on its own. 
Your parents didn't teach you growing up how to put your hand together every day. It's naturally put together. And just as it's put together and it comes that way, your job, which is a very important job, is to maintain the unity of your hand. So this is what I teach my kids. Be careful where you put your hand, right? Don't just throw your hand out the window. Be careful because your job is to protect the unity of your hand. You don't want your hand to get broken. You don't want your fingers or your limbs to get cut off. And so just as it is our job to maintain the unity of our hand, so it's our job to maintain the unity of our church. We didn't create the unity just as you didn't create your hand. But we have come into this community through the unity that we have in the Holy Spirit. And so it's our job to make sure that the unity stays intact. Because just as if you break your thumb, it hurts you. If you break the, the body, it will hurt you as well. It will hurt all of us. So what is this unity? It's the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bonds of peace. It is the peace provided by Jesus. And so I love J.D. Greer's definition. He says that true unity in the church is where real people from different perspectives and preferences find a larger united, uniting hope in Jesus Christ. Unity is having the same convictions about the gospel and the same understanding about its importance and then attempting to think about everything else in line with that. That's what it is. So it's the unity of the Spirit. But just as the Spirit creates it, the Spirit also empowers us to maintain it. Because those fruit of the Spirit and those virtues that he lists are all result of the Holy Spirit empowering us. It's the Holy Spirit that preserves the unity that we have. And so if you're struggling to love people, any of you ever, ever struggled to love people? All right. Hearing none of you, you're all liars. Um, <laughs> but I still love you anyway. Um, if you struggle loving someone different than you or someone that's difficult to love, well, you know what you could do? You could ask God to help you. And you can say, Lord, I don't like this person. But I know you love them. So Holy Spirit, will you love this person through me. You know that sometimes God puts people in your life to help your sanctification. God puts certain people in your life to help you learn humility, to help you learn patience, to help you learn kindness, to help you learn goodness. And it's all to develop you so that you can become like Jesus Christ. One commentator said that our calling as Jesus's disciples is to be a witness through our unity in him to a world that seems even more divided than ever before. Sadly, instead of displaying great unity, we are carried by our culture rather than being counter-cultural. If we belong to Jesus, we have a higher expectation and calling not to agree on everything, but to show in our words and our lives that our disagreements are trivial compared to that which unites us. Unites us. We have far more in common in Christ than anything that divides us in the world. You know, one of the things that's interesting, I travel quite a bit and I wear a Kentucky shirt for two, three reasons. Number one, I always represent the Big Blue Nation. Okay? Jesus and the Big Blue Nation. Secondly, it's a great way for me to get into gospel conversations because people say, hey, UK, you know, unless, you know, most people know who we are. And so it's a way for me to kind of bridge. And then third is just because I like representing and it's amazing. I can meet people from literally all over the world and we don't know anything. And we, we may even speak different, different ways of speaking or different cultures or backgrounds, but we have this unity in Kentucky basketball. 
Well, just as great as that is, we have a far greater unity than, than a sports team. We have unity in Jesus Christ, and that's the cause. The cause of our unity is Jesus. Let me get to the second point. It's the cost of our unity. Now, I skipped over a phrase in chapter 4, verse 1, and he says this. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And what, I'm, what you have to understand is that Paul is literally writing this letter from a Roman jail. He was under house arrest. We know that in Acts 28. And then he's later going to go to the Mamertine prison in Rome. And there, from there, he is going to be executed. So this is a letter written from the inside of a jail. Paul could have, in giving all 40 of these commands that will follow chapters 4, 5, and 6, he could have said, I'm an apostle, do what I say. He could have used his authority as an apostle to command these people to do this. But instead, instead of saying, hey, I'm an apostle, listen to me, he grounds it in the fact that he's a prisoner for the Lord. Why would he do that? Two reasons why. Stay with me. I'm almost done. Here's what he's saying. Number one, if you walk this way, if you live this life, it will cost you like it's cost me. Do you understand that if you're living for and following Jesus, it always comes with a personal cost? That there is always a dying to self involved. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A.W. Tozer said that to carry one's cross means that you're walking away, that you're never coming back. The cross symbolizes what it means to die to self. The Christian life is not a life that's void of suffering and sacrifice. So Paul says that if you live like I'm telling you to live, if you walk this way and talk this way, then you're going to suffer. You're, there's going to be a cost involved. See, when it comes to the unity of our church, it requires for us to have unity, there must be a dying of self. It will cost us to have unity. It will cost us our preferences. It will cost us our convenience. It will cost us time and energy and comfort. But yet being a part of a church is not about having all of your needs met at a cost that's acceptable to you and your family. Being a part of a church is being willing to pay the cost, whatever it is, to be a part of it because you see that being a part of the church is worth it. You know, one of the best ways that I can illustrate this is just asking this question. How many of you love your family? All of us do. Do you know that to maintain unity in your family requires a lot of, of, of grace? Requires a lot of humility, gentleness, patience. To maintain unity in your family requires bearing with one another. So to love your kids and to maintain unity in your family, you have to understand your kids will often inconvenience you. That your spouse will disappoint you. Your spouse will disagree with you. To maintain unity in your home will cost you money. It will cost you time. It will cost you effort and a lot of pain. But probably everyone in this room would say, my family is worth the sacrifice. And just as your family is worth the sacrifice, so we as the body of Christ, we are a family. And therefore, it requires that we give. It requires that we pay. You know, over the past few years, there's been a lot of church changes that have come to our church. And we're about to enter into a new phase, a new adventure, starting next weekend with a new schedule. And I want you to hear from me that all these changes that we've made since I've been here, I've been here almost a year, three weeks from now will be a year. 
And, and all these changes that have been made have been thought through, not just by me, but by many others, and have been prayed through, not just by me, but by many others. But all the changes, any changes that we've made is always, all of them have had a cost associated with them. And there's always some degree of pain because anytime there's change, there's pain. But I love what John Maxwell says. He says that the, the change will only happen when the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. And for us, it would be greater and more painful for our church to continue being what it was and, and, and doing certain things than it was to change to what we need to be because all the changes we have made are about fitting within the vision of being a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church that reaches Naples to the nations. And if we want and we believe in the vision, it will come with a cost. If you want to reach the next generation for Jesus, if you want to see the unreached people group of the next generation and the generation after them come to know and love and follow Jesus, it's going to come at a cost. It's not cheap. And we as a church, we need your help. God is growing our church. We're starting on the verge of multiplication and, and, and as many new families and as many people as God is bringing us and our kids are bursting with the seam, at the seams in our kids' ministry and our student ministry, we need more volunteers. We need more people to say, you know, here am I, Lord, send me. And I believe that God always gifts his church with people who can do what God's called them to do to reach not only those in the church but outside of the church. Do you know that it takes 350 people to serve in our children's ministry each month to make it work. We have opportunities for you. There are a ton of opportunities. And so you know, what Paul is saying is, listen, for you to live this way, for you to live in unity, it's going to come at a cost like it came to me. But here's the second point. In saying this, he was teaching us that the call to live this way is worth suffering for because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Listen, my sacrifice for Jesus pales in comparison to Jesus' sacrifice for me. Jesus purchased our unity by his blood on the cross. Jesus loved us enough to get involved, and that's why Paul wrote in chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. For us to be one, Jesus had to die. See, the cost of our unity and bringing people together from all ethnicities and cultures and socioeconomic backgrounds and generations is infinite. For us to be together, as sinful as we are, Jesus had to die, but yet as sinful as we were, we were loved so that Jesus was willing to die so that he could make us one with him forever. And to the degree that you and I understand the magnitude of God's love for us, despite how wicked and sinful we are, is the degree by which we as a church will grow together in the grace of God and speak the truth to each other in love and work through our differences because we understand we're on the same team and we have the same mission. And that mission is greater than ourselves. And that mission is worth the sacrifice. And the reason why is because Jesus is worth the sacrifice. Let me end with this. This week, I was with 600 missionaries all over North Africa, Middle East, and they were all in Orlando for a meeting. One of the things that struck me in this meeting was six, 800 people worshiping together. 
For many of those in that room, it had been four, three to four years since they had been in a room and worshiped God with other people in a setting like we have today. And they were singing their, with their guts out because all they had been doing in worship is listening to YouTube videos in a house with a handful of people. And being in a room of hundreds of people worshiping Jesus and they're singing their hearts out and they're singing their guts out and they're worshiping him. And listen, listen, I've talked to some of them. They said, we have longed for this day to gather with a bunch of people and worship Jesus because where we are, there are no Christians. There are no churches. There are no opportunities. And then here's what I thought in my head. I said, what we take for granted every Sunday, they are longing for and yet we just take it for granted. But that's not the main point of why I'm telling you this, is that I was with one of these missionaries in a very dangerous part in the Middle East. And I met a guy, his initial starts with S. S grew up in Iraq. He was a devout Sunni Muslim. Because of what took place in the country of Iraq, he decided that the best thing for him and his family was to relocate to Western Europe and the Netherlands. And so he went there to get a job. He finally got a job and was applying for citizenship. And one of his coworkers at his job was a Christian and told this man about Jesus. This man said, ah, I don't believe in that. That's foolishness. Well, in the course of time, this friend of mine went into the hospital. He got gravely sick. And while he was in the hospital, he had a dream. And in that dream, Jesus was standing in front of a mosque. And Jesus says, this is not the way. He woke up, sweat everywhere, still in the hospital. He thought he's just delusional. Goes to bed the next night has a dream, Jesus standing in front of the mosque. Jesus says, this is not the truth. I'm the truth. So he follows Jesus to a church. And he says, this is where the truth is. And he woke up. And goes to bed, wakes up, then, or goes to, wakes up, trying to figure out what this is all about. Third night, same dream. This is not the truth. I am the truth. This is where you'll learn about the truth. Guess what happened? He gets out of the hospital. Guess where he goes? He asks his friend who works at the factory, where do you, where do you go? And guess what he did? He invited him. And through a course of time, my friend became a Christ follower. He was on the verge of getting his citizenship in, Amsterdam, in, in the Netherlands, which would have been a big deal for a, for a refugee. That's almost priceless. Like, just imagine how much money and time and energy it would cost. And he almost had it. Like, this, this is completely unheard of. But yet he felt a burden in his heart. And that burden was for his people in Iraq. And so he took his family and left all of his citizenship paperwork, everything in the Netherlands and went back to Iraq and has suffered much for Jesus. 
God's using him, but he is, he is, his life has been really hard. His family was threatened. His extended family says, if you come back to our village, we'll kill you. He lost most of his money. His house was broken into. A lot of just constant struggles. And I met him in this country. And I listened to his story. And I asked him this question. Is it worth it? You know what he said to me? He says, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And God's using this man. He's actually leading a house. He's leading a church. And God's doing great things through him. It does, it's come with great price. And we could sit in a room like this, knowing we can leave here and have a wonderful lunch and go to our nice homes this afternoon, go to the beach, have a wonderful day, and we don't have to be in worry of certain things. But here's the thing. We hear about this guy, and we hear that him saying, Jesus is worth it, and we'll sit in our pews and say, yes, he's worth it, amen. He's worth it, amen. We'll raise our hands, we'll clap, he's worth it. But how hypocritical of it is it of us for us to say amen to people like my friend who've been willing to pay the price, whatever it takes, because Jesus is worth it. But yet we won't do everything we can to come together to reach people like him across the street and around the world. If we really want to see our church be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multiplying church that reaches Naples to the nations, we have to come together. We have to lay our preferences aside. We have to lay our conveniences aside. And we have to say, Jesus, you're worth it. We will only move as a church at the speed of our unity. And so my prayer for you tonight, today is this. Will you surrender your life again to the Lord and say, Jesus, you're worth it. You know, the video that we saw of all those people before us, they saw that Jesus was worth it. And they sacrificed their time and their effort and their energy so that you can sit right here, so that you can continue the ministry and the vision and the mission of this church so that the next generation can say, Jesus is worth it. So my prayer is today that we will leave here unified, all saying Jesus is worth it. Would you stand? Every head bowed, every eyes closed. I wanna, I wanna call you to do something. If you're here and you're a Christian and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to ask you to do something. Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice 
holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable worship. So I just want to call you right now, just where you are. Will you just today give your life to Jesus? Will you say, Lord, today I want to sacrifice my life. I'm a living sacrifice. Whatever you want, I will do. Wherever you lead, I will go. If you need me to serve, I will serve. And if you would, would you just where you are? Nobody's looking around. If you want to do this by raising your hands, if you want to lift your hands, if you want to get on your knees, if you want to sit down in your seat. But I want you tonight, this morning, to just give your life again to the Lord. So would you do that right now, everyone in this room that's a believer? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So would you do that right now? And I'm just going to let you talk to the Lord. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy of every song we could ever sing. You're worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Father, our only hope is in Jesus. He's the only truth. So, Father, today, we give our lives to you again. God, we are yours and we want to serve you alone. So with hands wide open, if you would do that in the room today, hands wide open to the Lord. Just say, Lord, make me a servant. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Father, use me to fulfill your kingdom as we reach Naples to the nations. Father, would you answer those prayers this morning and would you start that unity in my heart and bring us together and make us one. In Jesus' name, amen. We can have unity because Jesus is our cornerstone. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.